This episode of Heavy Cardboard is brought to you with support from Meeple Realty. We recently put together the Arkwright insert and it is absolutely fantastic. It makes setup and teardown so much easier and everything fits perfectly into the box. No half open box here. All of their inserts are very well made and add to gameplay of each game. Whether it's individual dice towers for Castles of Burgundy or literally the only way possible to store Caverna without the box exploding, Meeple Realty is plainly awesome. Check them out at MeepleRealty.com today. And when you buy one of their great inserts, tell them Heavy Cardboard sent you in the notes area at checkout. This is Quentin Smith from Shut Up and Sit Down, and you're listening to Heavy Cardboard for when medium cardboard just won't do. Heavy Cardboard, Episode 49, Small City. Coming to you from the small city of Commerce City, Colorado, welcome to Heavy Cardboard, where we talk medium and heavy strategy board games, war games, 18xx, and other related topics in the board gaming hobby. We're your hosts, I'm Edward. And I'm Amanda. And I am sore as all get out. (laughs) Tell everybody why. Yeah, I can't imagine. Saturday, uh, I went rafting down Clear Creek with our buddies Matt and Ash, and the water level was the highest that I've ever rafted on Clear Creek, and it was rocking. This was the third time I've gone. You went with me the second time. Correct. And loved it, right? No. (laughs) Once was enough. (laughs) Well, for us on Saturday, it was it was fantastic. Uh, class four and class four plus rapids. Uh, but yeah, I'm sore as hell now because of it. Um, less fat boy is still out of shape boy. So there's that. Uh, the cool thing, though, is we've already made plans to go down Gore Canyon in August, which is some of the very best rafting in the entire country as far as intense whitewater class five rapid stuff but yeah i think matt's even gonna make a small little video of the video that he shot plus the pictures and all that stuff so i'll go ahead and throw it up on the heavy cardboard page because i figure people might be interested in that and if not hey they don't have to look at it exactly that's pretty cool right all right so as some of you guys that may follow me on twitter know i finally earned my pens yes you did congrats (laughs) very proud of you 21.6 21.6 pounds down total, and you know, just gotta say, it's it's amazing what can happen when you actually stick to the plan. Don't go off the rails. Oh, so don't tell me. Wait, let me see. You lose weight. Yeah, it's crazy, crazy how that works, it isn't is it? It is crazy bonkers. I'm telling you. Uh, as far as me, I am at 34.8 pounds lost. 21 weeks into this. Woo-hoo. I'm 9.2 pounds away from my goal, but I'll be honest, I don't know that I'm going to stop at 210. I kind of want to see where my body levels out Okay. because the 210 was an arbitrary number. I was like, oh, 6'2", 210, that sounds like a good number. But I mean, if I get down to 195, if that's what my body right. is, is, is better suited for, then so be it. So, but yeah, I'm definitely going to have a monster reward when I hit 210 <laughs> regardless. Absolutely. And you should. So as far as uh, weather goes, um, obviously we went rafting. Uh, the water was like 40 degrees, so it's super cool because of snow melt, but it was gorgeous outside. It was upper 80s, low 90s. Uh, so perfect weather. However, summer is here. Which means tomorrow we can expect triple digits, Ugh. which 
the little worrisome thing is, is we don't normally hit those types of temperatures here in Colorado until, you know, late July, early August. And the fact that we're hitting them in mid to late June. Yeah, that's concerning. Yeah, that might be a really, really warm uh, summer, which yeah. I'll be honest, I can deal with the weather. I'm just worried about the lawn care because <laughs> we already have yellow spots in the lawn because the heat's been so intense already. Yeah. Not really thrilled about that. First world problems. Yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> Hey, it beats being in Houston. Oh, man. Ash was telling me all about how, you know, he would go there in the summer to visit family. And I'm like, wait a minute. That's the type of city you leave in the summer, right? Because of the humidity. I mean, you know, it's 95 and 100% humidity. It's like you're breathing water. Yeah, no, thank you. I've been there once and that was enough. Yeah, I'm all set. So we sat down with the What Did You Play This Week podcast thing, guys, and recorded a little interview. It's up on their feed now, and just a little hint, if you want to hear what I have in common with an ice cream shop in Paraguay, it'd be a good listen. (laughs) Yeah, it was a lot of fun just sitting around talking shop as far as, you know, board gaming and everything and all that stuff, but definitely enjoyable time with those guys, and I think it was a really good listen. I thought thought it was. Some of the the sinking got a little out towards the end of it. But uh, so I seemed like I was both really stupid and psychic because I was laughing at things before everybody else was. And I was answering questions before it was asked. But that was only like 44 minutes or so into the thing. So it was 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 awesome. It was almost over, but I still sounded really funny. Just random laughter. And then two or three seconds maniacal. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. And then two or three seconds later, somebody said something funny. (laughs) So speaking of exciting, I guess. And kind of, I guess, mind-blowing that uh, quite possibly by the time that this show, this episode airs, we'll have eclipsed a thousand members in the Heavy Cardboard Guild. That's insane. That feels like a lot of folks Uh for a little old podcast, right? It does to me too. So I don't know what we're going to do yet, but we'll probably come up with something, probably do say something. I I don't know. We'll figure it out between now and, well, later. So if you have any ideas or suggestions... Hit us up. Let us know. I am considering getting a piercing. It's called a daith piercing. It's in my ear. Um, It's supposed to help with migraines, but I've heard both sides. I've heard that it cuts down on them, but then I've also heard that it's just simply a placebo effect. You know, like you think it's going to work, therefore it does. Ergo, it does, right. So I've, like I said, I've heard of a few people that have it and that it works for them. Bill Corey actually is one of the people that he has both done, both sides done. But, um, I mean, does anybody out there have that, that you could give me direction one way or the other? You know, hit me up on Twitter, at Amanda U, or email us or whatever. But I just, I feel like if it would help, and I mean, we've tried so many things at this point, you know, I mean, if I'm willing to have botulism toxin injected into my face, then maybe a little piercing isn't that big of a deal even if it doesn't work i do feel like it's more quack science than it is legitimate and that's not to discount what bill said no not Um, at all if it works for him that's fantastic exactly i just the way i see it is if you want to get the piercing done i say get it done because you want that if it happens to help with your migraines so be it but i wouldn't do it in the hopes you know what i'm saying Uh that it fixes the migraines it's I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong, but there's just all the research I did when you had mentioned it is there's just nothing that backs that up. Same same here. I mean, everything that you read, it's like I said, it's either, oh, this is the best thing ever or 
It's really not. There's no reason, there's no scientific evidence saying that it would work or that it even should. But, I mean, I don't know. At this point, I'm willing to try almost anything. I would suggest you wait until we go see your neurologist and I have a little chat with her yeah, that's, first. Yeah, that's going to be a, a fun, a fun um, appointment for me. Oh, it'll be fine for you. Less so for her. Three years you've been seeing her with no noticeable improvement. <clears throat> anyway, let's move on. <laughs> I got to say, after seeing all the Origins pictures on Twitter and Facebook, we definitely need to go next year. You know, and I thought the same as you, but the whole pay to play aspect of the con and the fact that uh, you have to pay for this, get nickel and dime Mm, for that. I wasn't aware of that. And and people have to travel with their own tablecloths to make sure that the uh, the splinters on the tables don't poke through. It just, Oh, wow. See, I, don't I know. didn't hear any of that. This is just me going off of pictures. All right. Well, I mean, I've heard that it's the people that make the con, which sounds a whole lot like BGG con, mm-hmm. which I'm fine with. Don't get me wrong. But I may have to take a little convincing <laughs> to go next year because when you factor in, we have Geekway the week before HeavyCon, then we have HeavyCon, and then this two weeks after HeavyCon – I'm on board with going, but people are going to have to sell me on why we should. Yeah. That's all I'm saying. Well, after hearing that, then yeah, me too. (laughs) A big thank you to BoardGameTables.com for their sponsorship of the show. If you haven't seen their lineup of incredible gaming tables, do yourself a favor and go check them out at BoardGameTables.com. Their tables range from the traditional 5 foot by 3 foot to the Titan, which has a giant 6 by 4 playing area. Not to mention their more non-traditional hexagonal and small space square root tables. Amazing quality and an equally great price. And right now, if you haven't seen it, and how could you have not of, it's up to almost $900,000 on Kickstarter. We recommend checking out said Kickstarter, which features the best features of the 5 by 3 traditional table at about 20% the regular price tag. The Kickstarter table is called The Duchess. Just head over to their main site, boardgametables.com, and the link to the Kickstarter's there. And when you do, please remember to tell them that you heard about them from Heavy Cardboard. And for all those folks who don't know how to get in contact with us, Amanda? Our website is heavycardboard.com. Our email address is contact at heavycardboard.com. We love hearing from you guys, so please don't be shy. Our Twitter handle is at heavycardboard. Our Facebook page is heavycardboard. Our YouTube channel is heavycardboardvids, V-I-D-S. Our Instagram is heavycardboard. Our Patreon is patreon.com slash heavycardboard. And our BGG guild number is 2044. Continuing to say thanks to our Patreon supporters... A big thank you goes out to Ken B, Brian F, the What Did You Play This Week podcast, i.e. Brandon, <laughs> Giovanni, Michael N, Dave Cap, Tim Kaiser, Sean R, Jose Smith, and John Drake. A huge thank you to all of our Patreon supporters. All of them have been so instrumental in helping the podcast continue to improve and grow. So with that in mind, we've got a couple of, well, really exciting things to mention for both our Patreon supporters as well as everyone who is listening to the show. I think it's exciting. I mean, yeah, it sounds good to me. (laughs) Me too. Starting next week and continuing for the foreseeable future, we are going to have a giveaway every two weeks for our Patreon supporters at the $5 level and up. Whoa, whoa. 
every two weeks. Yeah. So like twice. So like twenty six giveaways a year. Yes. Isn't wow. that crazy? That's nuts. Who does that? Us. Oh, okay. All right. Continue on, please. It's another way for us to help make supporting the show even more fun and exciting for y'all. So after the first month of being a supporter of our Patreon at the $5 level or higher, you'll automatically be entered for each giveaway every two weeks. We'll be giving away everything from games, inserts, gift certificates, t-shirts, pint glasses, stickers, and all sorts of fun stuff. And not to mention all the other perks you get for supporting the show. The second thing I wanted to mention is arguably more exciting than the giveaways. Wait, more exciting than free stuff? Yeah, actually. All right, uh, I'm listening. Okay, sell me. <laughs> and that's the fact that Edward and I are about to begin filming playthroughs of heavier games. The kind of games that we all enjoy, but are more often than not ignored when it comes to that kind of coverage. And in our estimation, they're the ones that need video playthroughs the most. We're supremely close to hitting that milestone that unlocks those videos to start filming. And by supremely close, I mean $19 a month from the playthroughs becoming a reality. That would be supremely close. Yes, uh -huh. I agree. All right. So between the bi-weekly giveaways, the potential for helping us reach our goal of making playthrough videos available for everyone to watch, and the plethora Hefe. of other perks of being a Patreon supporter, we think we've made it worth it for folks to consider supporting the show. So check it out over at patreon.com slash heavy cardboard to see all the awesome things you get from being a Patreon supporter. Thanks, y'all. And thanks, seriously. That's really, really awesome that people are helping us out as much yeah, as they are. it is. Now, just because we're having more contrasts for our Patreon supporters, that doesn't mean we're neglecting the rest of the folks here. So, with that in mind, we're going to give away a new and shrink copy of Euro Crisis to one lucky listener. Woo! Go to heavycardboard.com forward slash Euro contest for the details. We'll give folks two episodes to enter. So you have between now until July 15th to enter. And we'll announce the lucky winner in episode 51. We'll ship for free here in the States and we'll help international shipping with the, say, first 15 bucks covered by us. A big thank you goes out to our friend German Mike, who was gracious in giving us the copy of Euro Crisis to give away on the show. So thanks, Mike, and good luck, everyone. Again, that's heavycardboard.com forward slash Euro contest. Good luck. Thanks, Mike. We want to thank the great folks over at Game Surplus for their sponsorship of the show and for helping us make these great giveaways and contests possible. Great people, great reputation, along with a great inventory of imported and hard-to-find games. Well, you can see why we're proud to be partnered with Game Surplus. Their tagline is, home of great games at great prices. Check them out over at gamesurplus.com. And when you do, remember to tell them Heavy Cardboard sent you. All right, so Edward, what has crossed our threshold since the last episode? Okay, I'm a little weirded out by that, but <laughs> if by crossing the threshold you mean what have we acquired, that that I can answer. Um <laughs> <laughs> so just two things uh liberty or death the only coin game that we haven't we didn't have uh i didn't p500 it because i was like yeah i'm getting a little cool about the coin system but i was like ah, ah maybe kind of waffling about it and then everybody was raving about it once they played it yeah. so i caved and we now have a copy the second one is going to come to as a surprise to a lot of folks, I imagine, and that's Star Wars Rebellion. I totally assume that this is going to be a rental, 
but I thought both you and I would give it a go as well as some of the folks in our game group would be interested in trying it. So why not? Right? Yeah, absolutely. Plus it's got cool minis. The in work or under construction uh, Death Star was pretty cool. I ain't gonna lie. It was. So that's it. Now that we're back on our regular bi-weekly schedule, I imagine that these are going to be a bit more truncated than they have been <laughs> as far as the acquisitions, at least until uh, SN and, and con season really kicks into gear. As far as kind of hunting, anticipating, whatever, there's not a ton on the shopping list right now. A number of new entries I added onto the anticipation geek list, so I would take a look at and maybe go with those as far as games I'm interested in learning more about. But other than that, nothing I'm really jonesing to pick up. I will say, as far as looking forward to playing, I have five on my list. More Millennium Blades, Mm -hmm. Star Wars Rebellion, because I want to at least try it and decide whether or not to just throw it away. I'm kidding. (laughs) To get rid of it or whether or not we want to keep it. Panthalos, even though our Patreon supporters were not a huge fan of the idea of us reviewing the game, I still want to try it. It has a cool theme and it's a cool work replacement game supposedly. Princess of the Renaissance? I mean, the Kickstarter kind of got me Jones in to play the thing. I've been wanting to forever anyway. And last but not least, I actually want to try the prototype of Crisis. I've learned the game, <laughs> but I haven't gotten around to actually you and I playing it. Right. So I really, really am excited to give that, put that through its paces. Cool. So how about you? What are you looking forward to playing? Well, like you said, more Millennium Blades, for sure. That was so much fun. And, uh, I gotta say, all this talk about the Cole trilogy being reprinted by Capstone is making me want to play Rucheford again and Colon Colony. I never got to play Colon Colony. Uh, played Rucheford a lot, but that's been a long time since we played it, and you know, I still want to play Colon Colony. Awesome. I, I I imagine there will be people in our game group that would be more than happy to play that, including myself. All right. And I was really thinking about it because Matt and Dana played uh, Roads and Boats the other day, and I realized that we've only played that once. You sure it's once or twice? I thought only it, once. I think it's only once, and that's well, a travesty. no more than twice, and that's a travesty. A travesham mockery, dare I say? So, what have you been playing, Amanda? I mean, there's going to be a lot of crossover, but the, not everything, mind you. I've been playing Small City, of course. As have I, sure. Right. Wings for the Baron, which is a fun little dice chucker kind of like airplane building ish kind of game. Lanterns is a fun little game with uh, end of the night game with me, you, and Matt. Yeah, it was that was a nice little filler for the end of the night. Yep. Millennium Blades. Which was way... I don't know if it was better than what I expected, but it, it didn't disappoint. Not Let's at put all. It, that it was so much fun. I can't wait that to play that more. That was really enjoyable. Through the Ages and which, Edward finally won. Exactly. So it's the new version of Through the Ages. I, I, do we still have to say that nowadays? I don't, I don't think so. Just through the ages, it's yeah. accepted that it's a new one. All right. Well, anyway, it was you, me, and Tony KR. And I have this weird stigma attached to me, and I'm genuinely not sure why, that in any games, in Civ games, I'm people seem to think that I'm this huge warmonger, and I'm really not, unless I'm forced to be. And that's exactly what happened in this case. Amanda, you had, what was it? I want to say it was Michelangelo and the... Uh, St. Peter's Basilica, I think. I think that was it, yeah. The pairing, and you were just getting three, four, five times as many points as Tony and I were. And I was like, yeah, I can't abide that. So you were neglecting military, so do what the other person isn't and hammer them that way. And that's exactly what I ended up having to do. And it got to the point to where I was beating on you so much 
that Tony KR was starting to get away from things. So I had to transition from picking on you Mm -hmm. to picking on Tony. And I balanced it just perfectly to where I got, I want to say it was like a two or three point win. It was fantastic. It felt great. And it was nice to finally win my favorite game. Yeah. So I was, had that gigantic lead at the beginning and then I lost by like 30 points. (laughs) So moral of the story, don't neglect your military. And then we had another fun, awesome time playing Time's Up at the end of the night. Yes, this one was, it was a Time's Up celebrity something. No, it was just Deluxe, the one that Paul uh, Chad got us for okay. Christmas. Gotcha. And it was brutal because half the people didn't know half the names. Mm-hmm. So it was it was hysterical yes. watching watching these get acted out and pantomimed. And oh yeah, it was a lot of fun. And I have yet to not stream tears from my eyes. Because <laughs> if folks have seen the pictures from last year's BGG when... The whole bunch of us, there was like a dozen of us that were playing. We were just all in tears laughing so hard. And that has happened every single time we played it. It's never not awesome. It Agreed. Is, it is so much fun. <laughs> Trying to see, watching Dana try to pantomime stuff is one of the funniest things that you'll ever see. And me too. I'm just, I'm terrible. And I love that you guys, when you stand up, you get in the stance. Oh, like, yeah. okay, I'm ready. Gotta and get then, in the stance, man. And then just abjectly fail, but well, it's hysterical. Yeah, just flail around and yes, and, and make. No and sense. Why can't you get it? I'm doing this exactly. thing with my arms. Duh. <laughs> That's funny. Good stuff. So, other than what we just talked about, what have you played that I haven't? Well, like I mentioned, I've learned how to play Crisis, but we ran out of time the other night to actually play it. So this week, that's going down. And let's see, Seven Wonders Duel. That was okay, I guess. I mean, it was fine. Yeah, yeah whatever. Um, and then, not really played, but I built my first insert, the Meeple Realty insert for Arkwright. And wow, there's a fair bit of assembly required there. <laughs> uh, but I gotta say, it's totally worth it. It's gonna make setup and teardown of the game so much quicker mm-hmm. and easier now. So color me totally impressed. And dare I say a convert, because I started with what has to be their hardest insert, we also have the Castles of Burgundy insert. I'm sorry, the Bergen von Bergen Correct. insert. Mm-hmm. And I looked at that and the instructions for that, and I'm like, Psh, this is a, this is no sweat now. This is, <laughs> this is stupid easy. That's fine. So I'm excited to actually use the insert in a game. We did use it at HeavyCon, but it was more as a... And we used it on the side, whereas... The game will already be in the insert when we start play because we need to get playing it for the playthroughs, right. the video playthroughs. Exactly. So I'm looking forward to actually busting that out. I think that'll be a lot of fun. Yeah. And anything that helps with setup and tear down on that game is a welcome addition. Yes. Lastly, I played a very early stage game from our friend Mo over on the board game group. Played with him on Vassal, one of his new game, his new design. And it's my first time playing on Vassal. And the game had some cool stuff to it. It's uh, about, I don't know, about 15, 20 minutes per player or so. So on a four-player game, you're looking at about an hour. But it's still early on. And he's going to present it to a certain publisher here in the near future. So wish him all the luck in the world with that. Luck! But as, as far as Vassal goes, that's a uh, that's 
It was cool to try it, um, but I'll I think I'll stick to in-person board games for the most part. Right. Outside of uh, you know playtesting, which I mean that's really cool that I could playtest with guys in in Texas, mm-hmm. and here we are in Colorado to be able to do that. So I understand the usefulness of stuff like that, Tabletopia, and and the other ones that are out there. But um, other than that, yeah, not really my yeah, cup of tea. I'm just not a big fan of that. Nope. I'd rather just play the. The game in front of me but yeah if i'm playing video games i tend to play them solo mm-hmm. anyways you know skyrim fallout 4 right. stuff like that uh so yeah not my cup of tea but it was a lot of fun just hanging out and bsing with the guys as well as playing the game so i get the appeal but yeah it's not for me yep. same here i know you used to be a magic player so I think that might be why Millennium Blades kind of spoke to you a little bit. I think that's actually a really good point. Millennium Blades, designed and published 2016 by D. Brad Talton Jr., who is Level 99 Games. It plays two to five players, plays in about two hours, give or take a little bit. So in Millennium Blades, it's a super meta card game in which players play as players of the CCG game, which is Millennium Blades. The game's broken up into three rounds, with each round consisting of a real-time deck building phase and then the actual tournaments that players compete in. In the deck building phase, players start with a handful of cards, then they build their decks. They accomplish that by purchasing booster packs, which in the game are single cards, but they look like booster packs, and it's presumably the best card in the in the pack. They buy and sell cards via the aftermarket, trading stacks of common cards for rare cards and trading between players. Players have three timed rounds to build their completed decks for a grand total of 20 minutes, and they do this to prepare to battle one another's decks in that round's tournament. In the tournaments, players take turns playing cards from their decks to gain reputation points. There are numerous effects that cards can have on one another, and chaining effects is one of the goals of good deck construction. After every player has played their allotted number of cards and performed the actions that the cards allow them to do, Victory points are awarded based on every player's finish in the tournament, which is then determined by the reputation points that they gain during said tournament. Players build decks, then compete in tournaments three times. Whoever has the most victory points at the end of the third tournament is the winner. Obviously, there's more to the game, but that's just a brief overview. So things I dig about the game, I'm just going to do these boom, 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 rapid fire. Extremely ambitious, both in theme and scope. I mean, it's... Yo, dog, I hear you like games about CCG games right. and people playing CCG games. Yep. So that ap- absolutely appealed to me. And as someone who grew up playing Magic, like you said, Amanda, um, I, I did get burnt out on the game. But I got to say, it was just a lot of fun to play. The chaining of effects, exploring the different decks as you buy and trade and, and discover what's in each of these different decks. They're multi-use cards. Do you add them to your deck? Do you trade them? Do you sell them? Put them in your collection for victory points. There's a whole different, whole just score of ways that you can do stuff with these cards, which is just adds to the, you know, that decision tree that Mm -hmm. we always love. Yep. Near infinite replayability just in the sheer number of decks to incorporate into the core deck. The amount of cards is absolutely insane. It's staggering. It truly is. 
as somebody who really doesn't enjoy real-time games, whether video games or, or board games, hello, space alert, <laughs> I gotta say, I really enjoyed the real-time aspect of the deck building that's in this game. You know it's going to be 20 minutes. That's how long you have. Right. The unique mechanics, and there's a bit of spatial decisions that go into where and when to play cards during the tournaments, plus the humor in the cards and kind of their their riff and their their not making fun of, but their play of on other games mm-hmm. or other pop culture type stuff. Uh, yeah, just just a lot of positives from this game. So one of the things that completely blew my mind is if you look at every card, the same guy drew every single card. I think the best compliment that I can give the game is that whenever we first sat down to play it, at game group, there were two people in the game group that had absolutely zero interest in playing the game. And then we are over there hooping and hollering and having so much fun slapping down cards and everything that by the time we were done, those two people had been completely turned around and wanted to play Millennium Blades as soon as they could. And so I think that that just shows how much fun the game is and how different the setting is as well. Now, on the on the negative side, now keep in mind, we've only played this once. I'm not a fan of anime or manga. Now, this doesn't detract from my enjoyment of the game, but it really didn't add anything to it. Adjust accordingly if you feel strongly one way or the other. Um, but I just figure I'd, I'd point that out. As Amanda said, the same artist did all of the cards, which is amazing to me that's unbelievable and that's an impressive job it's just it's just you know how artwork is it's very subjective just not my cup of tea and that's fine ocd folks need not apply the real-time aspect uh means that things aren't gonna stay perfectly stacked etc etc isn't that right ocd girl yeah and it was great let me tell you (laughs) yeah but you managed okay right yeah it's just i try to get past it and just enjoy the game (laughs) So with so many cards that setting up and then when you're mm-hmm. finished playing, resetting the game can be a significant chore. Yes. Although it's nice that I have folks like Amanda and Matt that enjoy sorting. Yeah. So there's that. But assuming most folks don't have people like that in their groups, yeah, it's going to be a serious pain mm-hmm. in the butt. That is the most tedious part of it is just the setting up of the draw deck is it's a lot. I would beg to differ that it is the most tedious, and that rolls into my next point, which is <laughs> the initial building of the packets of money. <laughs> no, it it's cool to try them, and versus just like a single paper money bill. But honestly, I think it's better in concept than mm-hmm. in practice. We're going to be using poker chips going forward, so it's a cow's opinion. It's. <laughs> You know, but again, if the money aspect is one of your biggest gripes about the game, I think that bodes well. Yes. Last but not least, I've heard that the two-player game is more or less uh, a collection of variants uh, versus the number of players that it's actually made for. So that's to be determined when we do a full review on that aspect, but just something that I've read and heard. So take that for what it's worth. So to sum it up... Millennium Blades is not going to be for everyone. In fact, I would say that in our group, Tony and Paul Chad, yeah, no, I, I would never ask them to play this game. However, people like Matt, Tony KR, and other friends of ours, absolutely. So it's going to be very, very group dependent. But 
If the idea of the game is intriguing to you and you know what to expect from it going in, you're not going to be disappointed. I'm genuinely jonesing to play the game more, and I hope as we play it more, it finds its way into a full-featured review later this year. Yeah, I agree. I'm very much looking forward to playing it more because, like you said earlier, the replayability is just crazy because of the vast number of cards in the game. It'll be quite difficult to see the same card more than once in a few play sessions. And to be honest with you, I think we could play this game four or five times with just the recommended Mm -hmm. setup. Absolutely. And still not see everything in this game. So that, not to mention the dozens of other decks that could be incorporated. So Mm -hmm. yeah. Yep. Looking forward to it. Very excited. As far as a rating, it's one play, so I'm not going to give one, but it's, it's, it, it was very enjoyable and it bodes well for future plays. I'll put it at that. Yeah, same here. I actually had a rating written down, but that's a good point. We only played it once. So I will defer to you as well. But I do I do agree that it's it was a lot of fun. It was very enjoyable to play and I can't wait to play it more. And that's Millennium Blades. As folks know, I work in aviation, so this next game that we're going to talk about has a special place in my heart. I was really excited to get this from Victory Point Games. Amanda? Yeah, so that's Wings for the Baron. It's the second edition. The designer is Dave Townsend, and the publisher is Victory Point Games. The second edition came out in 2015. It plays three to five players and takes anywhere between 45 minutes to 90 minutes, just depending on the player count and how new you are to the game. The game is set during World War I, and you are the head of a German aeroplane manufacturer, and your job is to supply the planes needed to ensure German victory in World War I. You play cards, roll dice, to do everything in this game. Everything from performing espionage on your fellow players to steal learned technologies, to whether or not inflation in Germany goes up at the end of each round. At the beginning of the game, you are given a set of six cards that are identical to everyone else's. On your turn, you will play two of the six cards to perform actions, and you, they do go in this order, so you'll see in a minute. So uh, the first card is Build. You gain one factory for being able to take contracts that are available. Espionage. You roll a die to attempt to steal knowledge from another player's tech tree. Design. Adding a design to your tech tree, which is signified by a marker that goes on your player board. And that also Im- that improves your plane. So an example of a design would be welded steel, which is one of the first designs you will need to learn in order to expand your tech tree. And each design you add adds more to your DRM. After you add a design, you roll your die, add up the markers on your board, and that equals your plane's revenue, which is one way for you to get paper marks, which is the money in the game. Research, which is simply draw a card from the draw deck, and there is no hand limit in the game. Bank. Roll a die to attempt to convert paper marks into gold. At the end of the game, the winner is determined by who has the most gold, not paper marks. And this is to signal the decline of the German economy during and after the war. And the sixth card is Focused Action, which simply copies your other card, so it allows you to perform the same action again. And as I said earlier, they go in that specific order and they are numbered. So, for example, Research comes after Design. So if you don't have the card that you want during the design phase, you can't build it. So you have to already have it in your hand before you can play the design card. After card play, the player with the most advanced plane rolls a die to determine how many contracts that they will obtain from the available number of contracts. 
you can only take as many contracts as you have factories. Once the contracts have been determined, another die is rolled to see if inflation rises. At the end of the round, a war status card is drawn, which will change something in the game, either increase or decrease morale, number of available card contracts for the next round, and whether or not the allied bomber manufacturers are advancing also. The game has no specific number of rounds, and it only ends on one of the following. If either German or allied morale hits zero, or the economy hits hyperinflation. The one with the most gold wins. So what I like about the game is it's very historical and very true to history, which I think is pretty cool. There are five different companies that were actual companies in Germany during the time that you can be the head of, and each company has a special privilege. So for example, one company allows you to start with four factories, which everyone else only gets one. But I like the the historical fact is pretty cool. Yeah, the theme is fantastic. Balancing the whole wartime manufacturing with a horribly fragile economy is really well done. Leave it to Victory Point Games to bring a really unique theme to the table. Absolutely. I've never seen a game like this before. It was pretty cool. And the game actually even comes with a 12-page booklet about World War One. It has historical references regarding the companies and the people involved. And just for history buffs, it's, it's pretty cool. I mean, that's, I'll be honest, that's, a big appeal of war games in general is the history that goes into right. the designing these games and everything else. And it makes you want to go and research further. So it's, yeah, it's, I love it. Yeah, for sure. And the cards have different things on them. The top is one thing and the bottom is another. So that always makes for a really good, tough decision when you want both things on the card to happen. And it's absolutely not at all possible for that to be the case. And more often than not, you're going to have that yep. that decision. Be like, man, I want to do it this one time. Can I do them both? Exactly. Right. <laughs> and it's, a, I mean, we love our tech trees. And it's def- it's a different take on a tech tree in the fact that you can steal knowledge from other players. I think that's fun. That espionage, it's a cool way to gain tech advances, mm-hmm. but it comes with a cost that you don't get the added benefits as if you had developed it or instead of having developed it right. yourself. You don't get so to it's get revenue. That, right, exactly. And so it's like, well, I got this, you know, this added tech, which adds to my DRM, but I don't get the revenue. And in the end, revenue is points. So, you know, how important is it? Plus, your your actions are so limited that is that how you want to go about getting right. these technologies? So, yeah, really tough decisions. But again, you know, the, since the things are learned from cards, if you're never able to draw a card that you need that you that has that exact design, but player across from you has it, you can always attempt to steal it and it cuts down on the luck factor. Agreed. And speaking of, uh, I mean, because when you were going through the uh, overview, you were talking about, oh, you roll a die for this, you roll Mm -hmm. a die for that. Well, the good news is a lot of these effects are universal. They either help or hurt everybody across the board. Um, Plus, there's just multiple ways to be able to mitigate the die rolls to where early in the game, yeah, they might have a bigger impact, but a D6, when you're already, you know, all the techs on your board are at like 18, 19 right. points, uh, a variance of six is considerably less later than it is early. Mm-hmm. So there's there are definite ways to mitigate it. So that's a big plus in yes. our diceless world. Absolutely. And there's also a campaign game, and it, that seems really cool. It actually adds even more to the tech tree, including um, developments in bombers and reconnaissance aircrafts. 
Yeah, to it supplements the fighter development, yep. which I think is really, really cool. You can't completely specialize in those because you'll just you'll fall behind too much, but it's a cool way to supplement it. We haven't played the campaign game yet, but it looks really interesting yep. and it's something I definitely want to get into. For sure. And one last thing that I have is really quick turns. Um yeah. because it's not everybody does all their stuff. It's like, okay, who has, you know, um, Card number one, and okay, everybody that has the ones, you guys take your actions and twos and threes and so on and so forth. So people are constantly engaged. So even though it's, you know, 90 minutes, call it, you know, an hour and a half, maybe two hours for your first game, depending on player count, you're involved and you're constantly doing stuff. So it feels like it goes by really, really fast. Mm -hmm. So the inflation mechanic and how it affects everybody's war effort is just brimming with theme. And it's really effective because it hangs over everybody like impending doom <laughs> since money equates to winning the game. And if hyperinflation brings the game to an unexpected and sudden end, your paper marks aren't worth anything and it's strictly your gold. And so that's super, super important. Really, the only thing that it's kind of not cool about the game is that it, you know, it can be random. But as we've said, that it can be mitigated by a lot of stuff. And because it's such a short playtime, I really don't mind that it can be random um that doesn't bother me if it was a six hour game that'd be one thing but an hour sure. and a half meh. yeah think of it as kind of a fun romp as opposed to a dice fest yeah. for the simple fact that there are so many ways to mitigate the dice that luck does come into play because there has to be some element of possible failure there but again with the mitigation it all seems it all seems you know it feels right you know yeah. what i mean and i mean you know me being a graphic design nerd some of the graphic design on the cards is kind of lacking. I hate the font that was used in the player cards. I And I kind of feel like that the... I don't really know what they were going for with the dual, the top and bottom parts of the cards, but it, it very much looks like a top and a bottom. There's not any type of... Smooth transition? Yeah, there's nothing. Okay. It's, it, it, it almost feels as if they're kind of like stick-ups and they taped part of one on the top and the rest on the bottom. It's just, that's just, I feel like that could have been done maybe a little bit better. But other yeah. than that, I think it's, okay. you know, it's a well done, fun and, game. And I like the, I like the counters because they're, if you're familiar with Victory Point games, they do the laser cut almost like wood. Um, so they do have that, that ashy, uh, like almost burnt edges of them um, that's intentional. The soot is left over from the laser. So just something to be aware of, but that's pretty standard when it comes to victory point games. I don't mind it, but it can turn your hands a little bit black, but they, they put a nice little napkin in each yeah. game so you can wipe them off. If you want. <laughs> I saw so. that that was for to wipe off the dice is what they say to use oh, it Oh, well for. you can use it for the Which whole I don't understand pieces. like, why? What's wrong with the dice? I don't There's know. There's nothing wrong with them. <laughs> I obviously have a lot more pros and cons. We only played it once. There's a lot of cool stuff going on. I really want to play the campaign game. I guess, you know, like maybe an initial rating would probably be a four just because there's really cool things going on and the different aspect of the tech tree I think is neat. But um, what, what are your final thoughts? 
Yeah, I think it was just, it was fun. And with the historic uh, companies, as well as the really unique theme of being on the side of the Germans Mm -hmm. and trying to help the war effort, but you're not fighting the war. uh, I just, I really enjoyed this, this fun little romp. And it's something that I could definitely see us playing more of in the future. And I would agree with an initial rating of a four, but again, that's based on one play. So take it with a grain of salt. But if this sounds like something uh, that interests you and and you're a fan of the randomness that dice can, mitigatable dice can induce, then I would say definitely look into it. And that's Wings for the Baron. All right, you ready to dive into Small City? All right, let's do this. Small City, published in 2015, designed by Albin Viard. The artist... Albin Viard himself, as well as a few other folks, Defani, Todd Sanders, and Sampo Sikio. Sorry if I butchered your name, Sampo. Published, well, actually it's self-published by Albin, which is his company, AV Studio Games, out of France. It plays one to four players, and it says that it plays in about 60 to 120 minutes. As far as availability and cost, you'll be shocked to know, I'm, I'm sure, that it's currently available directly from AV Studio Games for 60 euros, along with all the expansions. Small City is a building game where players are running their own borough within the same city and are fighting to garner more votes than their opponents to become the new mayor of Small City. At the beginning of each game, players will select one promise card of the three that they're dealt, an easy-to-keep promise, a medium, or a tough promise to keep. These are in-game bonus point goals that can help you if you keep your promise or hurt you if you don't. Novel. The game takes place over eight identical rounds, with each round consisting of the same eight phases. There's a special action selection phase where players gain a small bonus for various things for that round via rondelle-like mechanism. Then players simultaneously build and upgrade buildings on their own tableaus or burrows, following a smorgasbord of special rules for each type of building. There are five main types of buildings that players can and will build, and within most of those, there are multiple levels of buildings. Level 1 buildings are 1 by 1 squares, level 2s are 2 by 1 rectangles, etc., etc. Think Tetris pieces. Up to as many as level 6 buildings for some types. So the different types of buildings, you have residential. These are going to gain players' votes or victory points, as well as how they get more citizens. One of the main ways they get more citizens. Cultural buildings allow for free upgrades of residential buildings. Commercial buildings garner players' votes. Money allow for the conversion of those things into one another. Then there's factories. These generate resources that players will use to build those cultural buildings and turn those money, uh, turn those into money or votes. And remember, those cultural buildings are necessary to be able to build and expand residential buildings. And finally, there are parks, which reduce or stop pollution, but the key point, they never remove it. Following the building phase, in turn order, players move their own citizens around the borough, as well as other boroughs if they wish to send any abroad. The key here is nearly all citizens must move from their current location. They cannot stay where they're currently at. After which, players count up the votes or victory points that they gain during the turn, peg them on the victory point track. But, with all these citizens, tourists, factories, and such, you know that pollution's going to come into play, right? 
Every borough attracts their own pollution, be it from current citizens and tourists in their own borough, as well as for each good that a factory produces. The kicker here is that pollution never lowers. It starts at 0%, and once any of the player's boroughs reaches 10% pollution, citizens or tourists start dying in the borough that created the most pollution that turn. And if a player's pollution level ever reaches 100%, you go watch TV, because your game has come to an end. Much like those tourists and citizens. Oh. The next to last phase allows players to quote unquote influence the city council where each player may spend money or votes in the basic game to get one time bonus from one of the four city council tracks, be it resources, money, votes, free building, uh, or get more citizens into your city. Finally, the mayor moves to the next player unless someone has selected the mayor back in the first phase when special actions were selected. Advance the turn marker and do it all over again. After eight turns, players reveal their promise cards and gain or lose votes based upon whether or not they kept their promises. In the advanced game, there are four different possible win conditions that players must agree upon prior to the start of the game. But in the basic game, which is also one of the four win conditions in the advanced game, players then subtract their pollution level from their vote total, and whoever has the most votes at this point wins the game, becomes mayor. So let's start out as we always do. Let's review uh, scalability and such. So as far as plays and player counts that we've experienced, I have four plays, all of them though, three and four players. Hey, blame my rafting trip last weekend. I'm not getting lower player count plays on this one. Sorry, folks, rafting took priority. Yeah, I've only done it three times and they've all been four player. All right. So as far as scalability goes, the number of special buildings is one less than the total number of players, and that's really the only thing that I can think of that scales. Although, I'll be honest, I don't see why it would need any kind of scaling with fewer players, since players are basically battling it out on their own tableaus and not so much on a common board. Right, it's basically multiplayer solitaire. With an exception yeah, on that. Yeah, but, but, but what I mean is that, you're like you said, you're not directly competing with other people, so the number of players really doesn't matter. All right, so moving on to the cardboard. So components, you want to go first on this? Sure, the component quality is definitely better than VR's prior games. I'll agree with that. Yeah. So as I said in the beginning, this is self-published. Now, it's not that, you know, like some dude's just putting it together in his house, you know, uh, in, his, in his hobby room or whatever. It has decent production mm -hmm. quality for it being a self-published game. However, it's not going to be what you would normally expect from a larger publisher. Right. Um, the city pieces, I will say, are a little thin, but I don't really know how well it would work if they were thicker pieces of cardboard because you have to fit them all together so well. and Tetris-like. Yeah, right? you have to play Tetris basically for the entire game. I don't know how it would work if the pieces were as thick as, say, the Wings for the Baron pieces are. Sure. And I agree with you. I, I think the, the, the cardboard city pieces are totally fine and, mm -hmm. and acceptable. Yeah. However, it's thick cardstock for the main board and the player boards. Those those are going to get dinged up. It's just nature of the beast. Yeah. They are, in fact, going to get little ding corners. The player aids, those have uh, where they're folded. Those are going to turn white on the folds. And already and have. Already, right. And they, they did that from... The time we opened the box. Yeah. So if 
you're the type of person that these type things are going to bother you, then maybe you, if you can't look past that, then be aware of it, I guess is what I'm saying. The, there are wooden bits for the mini meeples, which are pretty cool. Mm-hmm. And the mayor and the there's there are standard hexagonal cylinders for the resources. And then plastic Martin Wallace money, but we always use poker chips, so no. Right. No I didn't even know what that. the money looked like, to be honest, because we never we never took it out of the box. Right. The cards are a weird shape as well. They're kind they're the skinny, tall type of cards. Huh, I guess I never realized that, but um, they might be a little bit more difficult to sleeve, That's, you're saying? That w- yeah, because if you, if you play it enough, you're probably going to want to sleeve the cards, especially the the promised cards, because you're, you're, you're play- people are playing with them all the time, and they keep looking at them because they've forgotten what they were, and stuff like that. That could be a bit of a sticking point, I think. It's possible, no doubt. If if there are sleevers out there that want to sleeve everything, I totally agree. However, you don't shuffle these cards too often. It's not like it's magic right. and you're constantly shuffling decks or Millennium Blades, for yeah. instance, or whatever. <laughs> so they don't get handled that much. So I don't. I wouldn't call it mandatory. Like I'm okay with having not sleeved our copy. Right. But for those that do, I get what you're saying. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Right. As far as the box, it's pretty big. It's an oversized box. It's 15 inches by 10 and a half inches by three inches. Um, it's not anywhere near the size of like a Roads and Boats or Antiquity or anything, but it's it's bigger than it needs to be. Yeah. It is, it's pretty massive. Uh, yeah, just be aware of that. Um, it's a big box in a sense that when it gets shipped from Albin, it's possible that it might get dinged up in a corner or whatever. Ours did. Not the end of the world to me. However, again, something to be aware of. It's not going to fit in just some little, small, regular size, medium, uh, flat rate box. Type nope. Thing. <laughs> well, not. <laughs> so overall, component-wise, I think it's good for an Albin VR published game, mm-hmm. but I would call it substandard versus normal published games. What do you think? Absolutely. I would agree with that, especially your point about the player boards. They're very thin. They... um. They're definitely going to get banged up if you play this game more than a couple of times. Which we think you probably might want to. Mm-hmm. Possibly. So moving on to graphic design. So you're you're the graphic design expert. You do it. Well, I'm far from an expert. But I will say that it's very clear that Albin is a graphic designer at heart. But he does go a little overboard occasionally. The graphic design is extraordinarily confusing on the player screen. Once you get a feel of how the game works, it's easier to understand, but it is still quite difficult. Um, I understand his want to go language independent, especially him being French, but the usage of arrows and X's and 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 lines just it can it can be very confusing if you don't if you don't know what you're looking at, you're just your eyes will cross. Yeah, once you once you familiarize yourself with the icons over the course of, you know, a couple of games, it makes sense. Right. But it absolutely could have been cleaner. Yes. So, how would you like if you were to kind of rate the graphic design, what would you what would you say? I would Just, say that it's very good um in in the aesthetics look of it, but the actual functionality. Yeah, I couldn't think of the word. Good job. The functionality is not there. Yeah, I think it could have been improved upon. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. So now we move on to the rule book. Dun, Clarity dun, and dun. quality. So we learned the game from the rule book. 
And I would say that the rule book is okay at best. There are lots of pictures and examples. There's awesome attention to detail when it comes to the artistic nuances. Yes, there is a cigarette burn on a few of the pages that it's not a burn, but it really looks like one because the inside the burn is what is on the underneath page. What's on the other page is it's identical. And you turn that page over and it's it's the same on the other side. It's in the exact same spot. It literally looks like someone took a cigarette and burned it. It's Oh, it's it, fantastic. It's fantastic. It's not burned, but it looks like it because yeah. of the way that it was designed. It's yeah, really that cool. Was, that was a really cool, nice touch. Yeah, However, very well done. This is the rule book. And the rule book works well for referencing. Setup is explained well, save for the building descriptions. You'll be forced to flip back and forth referencing the component list and the setup instructions to match the name of the buildings with their picture. It could have been cleaner and easier to reference when it comes to setting up the game. Again, once you learn the game and you learn the different names of the buildings and such, because they're not written anywhere on the building, again, for that language independence, right. it's just, it was a little bit frustrating to have to keep doing that. Also, there are several ambiguities and points of confusion in the rulebook that required us to go to BGG in the rules form. One in particular regarding the upgrading of buildings was especially frustrating because in the thread, Albin tried to clarify it and said two different things, and all he did was make it worse. And I'm blaming the language barrier on this one, but yeah, the rulebook absolutely should have been cleaned up and refined more. The rules impeded our first couple of plays of the game and it's it's just not doing both the players that want to play the game as well as the game itself any favors by being a just a a, a difficult rule book to get through um if i were to give the rule book a rating on our one to six scale it'd be a three at best all right amanda so heavy or medium or somewhere in between what do you think heavy i would say medium heavy to heavy and the reason for that is going to be this first thing that we talk about, at least in my opinion, and that's the complexity, be it the rules complexity, the rules overhead. Yes, kind of. that's what makes it heavy to me. The uh, Literally, the amount of crap you have to keep straight is unbelievable. Viard's games are always difficult for me. Like, for example, I've only played Clinic once, and that one time included me stopping. I almost threw a fit at Tony's house and just was done because I could not make my brain work. Now this one I didn't throw a fit and quit, but the first Which couple, I'm glad you did. <laughs> but the first couple games were a bit sketchy there for a little bit. This one's a bear to grok for sure, so the rules can definitely stay in your way for possibly multiple games. There's lots of rules to remember when it comes to building and upgrading, which mm -hmm. is the main crux of Chrome or the exceptions in the rules. Yeah, I I had a, I said that it's rules on top of rules with a side of rules and some rules for garnish. And the rule book doesn't help really. I think it I, I think the rule book helps once you understand the game to be able to go back and reference. Well, things. yeah, but getting there sure. is the hard part. Totally agree. Yeah. So let's roll into the the planning that the game requires, the amount of forethought, the thinking ahead, et cetera, et cetera. It takes a lot of forethought. Um VR's games are the only ones that make me feel like the dumbest human on the planet. <laughs> Yeah, it's absolutely vital from the very first placement of the very first building. Mm -hmm. You have to try and plan out your different buildings as far as their locations 
and the upgrade paths that you're planning on doing. And I'll be honest, four plays in, still kicking my butt, <laughs> still not doing really, really well with it, which I think is is a credit to the game. Yeah, it's the rules have gotten out of the way, and I'm just I'm I'm just failing at my job as a city planner, which <laughs> I guess is the whole point of the game, right? Yeah. So the way upgrades work, a building has to be influenced by X amount of buildings to qualify for a free and auto upgrade. So that that planning is just vital. And it forces you to work backwards a lot, much like the placement of buildings like in antiquity. Right. That's that's uh, where the similarities that I hear from people uh, to antiquity goes into the whole Tetris planning that goes into it. To a point. It takes a lot of forethought just because of that. The certain buildings must have certain other buildings in their area of control before they can even be built. But they're not allowed to have other buildings in their area, their zone of control as well. You have to plan multiple turns ahead in order to get the goal that you have in mind or the secret goal that you have in your hand. And I, I will say I don't do the best when it comes to games that require me to think very far ahead. So this one was a definite struggle. So going on to luck and random factors. Honestly, the starting player at the beginning is random. The ending goal cards you are dealt are random, but that's about it. Everything else is in player control. For the most part. there, mm-hmm. There's one other thing. Uh, the random selection in order of the eight special action cards for the game, but that's all, again, pre-game. Exactly. Everything's pre-game. There's no in-game luck or randomness in, in the basic game. However, in the advanced game, there are special promise cards that you draw to influence the city council as opposed to paying and cashier votes, which is another promise that you must fulfill by the end of the game or pay the consequences. You don't get any bonus votes if you fulfill it. You simply avoid it costing you votes. The influencing of the city council is always voluntary, however, so cut your own throat here. At least you get more than one card at a time and choose which you must keep unless you make it to the end of the track. Then you just draw one and you get what you get. So there is that amount of randomness in there in that draw. But again, you don't. that's a voluntary thing to choose to do if you want. So moving on to getting it. As I said earlier, it took me until about my third game to actually get a grasp of what was going on in the game. Um yeah. And you're a smart, you're a smart cookie. So and that, uh, we that didn't says even, something. We didn't even touch any of the expansions. I mean, just, ugh, it would, it's going to take a while before I'm comfortable doing an expansion. Yeah. It's like you said, it's really tough to grok. The second game was better than the first, yes. but still not as smooth as the third play of the game. Exactly. It's multiple games for the rules to completely get out of the way and to really get into the meat of the game, which is all those wonderful decisions and city building. And I totally agree with you, Amanda, in regards to the expansions. We have all the expansions, but I'll be honest, between there's enough game in the basic game to keep you occupied for multiple, multiple games. Mm -hmm. Then you're talking about the advanced game, and then there's the advanced side of the player boards, and then you have all the expansions. So it, uh, somebody had asked in the guild, which expansions do you recommend? I mean, I'm kind of a completionist in some regards, so we just got them all. But I'll be honest, I have no interest in even touching those for many a moon, mm-hmm. many a play. Yeah, it's so going to take a I while. I completely agree with you on that. All right, so I know we were harping pretty hard on some of the graphic design and the rules, but in theory, 
there is at least some stuff that makes this game enjoyable, right? Oh, absolutely. As long as you're okay with feeling incredibly stupid, the game is quite fun. (laughs) Yeah, there's tons of decisions to make, none of which feel trivial. Uh, The special action rondelle at the beginning of every round is really clever. Mm -hmm. I mean, it is. The way that works, the first player selects one of the available eight actions. The second player in, you know, clockwise around the table, they can select one of the adjacent because they're set up in a circle. So they can select one of the adjacent actions for free or go out one each for a dollar, go out one more each side for another dollar or the ones furthest away for three dollars. So free one or two dollars, possibly as much as three dollars. I think that's just a really, really clever use of the rondelle. It is. Because money is so tight in the game that you may not want to be the mayor, but that might be the only option you have for it to not cost anything. Right. To be able to get the action that you really want or need for that turn. Right. I mean, any type of city building game, I'm happy to play. I love city builders. I love civilization games. So I was, I mean, you know, I'm happy to play it and... Plus, it's got, you know, cute little tiny citizen meeples. Right, the little mini meeples. Yeah. And the game kind of feels like the child of Puerto Rico, Antiquity, and uh, SimCity, the video game. Which are three games that I really love. I mean, it's got the role selection for Puerto Rico. It's got the Tetris spatial planning type stuff that we talked about already in Antiquity. Although Antiquity doesn't have the upgrades. And then city development like SimCity and much more on top of all that in the form of resource acquisition and conversion and then, you know, a bit of worker placement in that your mini meeples must occupy one spot and no one else can go there, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, it's 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 got a lot of a lot of good influences as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. And I very much like the aspect of being able to utilize the mayor to hurt your opponents in their building opportunities. Yeah, he's he's a mean, mean he, dude. And he's really big, too, and he has an eggplant for a nose. And whenever he comes to visit your borough, he he's so big that he blocks two spaces. Two city blocks, in theory, and, yep, right? And you cannot build there. And so whenever you're the first player, everyone else at the table gets to decide where the mayor is going to plunk his butt down on your in your borough and that makes those spots unavailable for that turn so mm-hmm. oh you thought you were going to get all those awesome upgrades this turn yep. oh sorry so sorry for you no, just kidding so let's talk about the building so frustrating to learn with lots of if a then b but only if one two and three and then b can become c type rules mm-hmm. but they actually make thematic sense in the integration of the buildings and the way the upgrades work dare i say can become you know, a beautiful puzzle. For example, residential buildings are important because they garner votes, which is how you're going to win the game, assuming players are playing for that winning condition. Well, there are level one up to level five residential buildings, each with the potential to score more points than the level before it because it can hold more citizens. More citizens in residential buildings equal more votes each round. But to upgrade the residential building, You must have a certain number of cultural buildings near it. But to get more cultural buildings built, you need more resources, which you get from factories. But factories produce pollution, which can kill your citizens. Not to mention that there are other players' tourists that can come and work in your factories or other buildings 
and get those other players those resources and sticking you with the pollution. What the hell? Yeah. So, yeah, there's there's oodles of planning, as we talked about earlier. And it's just, it's a whole production chain of, I need this to do this, to do this, to be able to do this, to get points. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's cool, the interactivity of the different buildings. It's a lot to remember, but I do like how you can chain. You know, you can... Oh, you, you put this one building down and now all of a sudden you can build four different kinds of things. Or it can go from a level one to a level four conceivably right. Right. because it went, okay, it upgrades to a two instantly. Okay, cool. Oh, look, it's now being influenced by three right. different Oh, now great. Buildings. Oh, look. Now, yeah. Now you can now can upgrade to three and oh, it's bigger. So now it can upgrade to right. a four automatically and boom, you go from very few points to all of a sudden, wow, you can really rack them in. Yeah. And I mean, spatial reasoning is hard for me. It I, is for me as well. But I like a challenge and this fits it perfectly because I want to be able to play the game because I like city builders. So it makes me have to th- use my brain in a different way in order to actually be able to play the game. <laughs> so let's talk pollution and mitigating pollution for a minute. And uh, Now, for the most part, pollution is going to be a negative, unless you have the gold card that wants you to go heavy factories, environment deep be damned, and finish with 40 plus pollution. So there's the downside that, okay, all of a sudden, you know, you're getting this high pollution, which you're going to lose points for at the end of the game. But... With over-pollution comes the deaths of citizens, as well as tourists. Mm-hmm. If you're polluting a lot, you're going to be the one that has to kill a meeple. If you do, it can be a tourist. Encourages folks not to come into your borough and take the jobs that you want your citizens to have. Factories and commercial, etc. And there are ways to mitigate it. There are other buildings that can do that. But the other downside to this is great you're making this toxic for tourists to come and so nobody wants to send their tourists over there to die i get that that's awesome so now you can produce in your own factories you can work your own commercial buildings and all that but dead meeples take up space just like graves in antiquity and space is already limited so now you got a cemetery so this cemetery is going to take up spots where you're going to desperately need to be able to build Well, did you plan for that? Right. So speaking of space, having to expand the borders of your borough costs you, be it limiting how much you focus on building for a turn. In other words, you only, you know, build one as opposed to the three that you're allowed so that you can expand your borough. Maybe you take that special action that allows you to expand your borough for free or you have to influence the city council. Bottom line, there's always, always a cost. So I'd Mentioned the downside of sending tourists to other people's boroughs because they can kill. However, you can also use tourists as weapons to take lucrative spots from other players in their own boroughs. But tourists, as well as uh, citizens in action locations, commercial and factory locations, they have to move. So you can block players and scoop up those sweet spots, but you can only do it for a turn and then they have to move. And when they move, you can't then bring a new meeple from a different location into that same spot. Once you vacate a spot, you have to vacate that spot and leave it for another player. That's something else you have to juggle. And another thing that you have to juggle is you can't just move your meeple from one borough 
to like the borough that is uh, diagonal across from you, your maple has to travel there. So you have to, your maple has to go to the person's borough right next to you for one turn. Then the next turn they can go, you know, to somebody else. You have to, you can't just go wherever you want. You have to travel there. And so if the second person is the place that really has that 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 borough really has the building that you want to go to, you have to wait two turns before you can ever go there. Yep. Now, I, I will say this. In the rules, it says that you can't go diagonal in the first turn. This was never really clarified in the rules, uh, nor on BGG. So if we're playing this wrong, forgive us, but that's our interpretation. Right. That's what we understood. This goes back to the whole... Here, yeah, there's a lot of ambiguities in the rule book. Yeah. So just as a point of order, notice, sure, go with it. So turn order is important, but going first isn't always the important thing. As I mentioned previously, being able to take a much needed location in your or another player's borough can be awesome. But if you go first and someone is already in a location since they haven't moved yet because they belong to a player later in turn order, you can't go there. So the timing matters. So maybe you need to plan that, oh, hey, I need the spot where Amanda's meeples are, or at least one or two of them. So I need to make sure that I go after Amanda. So how do I manipulate that? And so that also is another thing that you need to be on the lookout for. Parks and their importance can't be understated. They Mm -hmm. reduce the amount of pollution that your borough generates each turn. But as the rules are written, they can be a bit overpowered. So there's an official variant that really isn't a variant, but it's where parks don't automatically upgrade. They have to be manned, etc. The general consensus is that's not a variant. That's just the way it should be played. And I agree. that I like the very first game we played, we played it as the rule state. And every subsequent play, we played it with the parks variant. And I feel like that was much smoother. Overall, though, I got to say, once you get past the rules... I completely love this game. Could yep. not, can't say enough good things about it. Same here. Once you get past that hurdle, it's worth it to get past that hurdle. Which brings us to those hurdles, things yes. that we don't like. So simultaneous building, it helps with, you know, AP. However, the amount of planning involved is really going to crush people that are prone to analysis paralysis. Yeah. If you're already prone to not being able to make a decision quickly, this is going to definitely add to that problem. Agreed. So as we've hammered already, rules, 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 you have to work at the game to like it, which isn't going to be worth it to some people. Plain and simple. Just the rules aren't going to be worth it to for them to fight through. As I've said before, Albin's graphic designingness can kind of get in his way sometimes. And I feel like it's it is kind of a hindrance with this game. It's beautiful, yes. But is it clear? Is it understandable? No, not always. Once you get past it and understand the rules, then sure, it's e- it's easier to understand your your the player screen and the player aid and the actual board itself with the city commission and the and the round marker and everything. But until you get there, it's pretty. But you might not know what in the world's going on. Yeah, and I feel like that's a problem. This is one of those games that absolutely benefits from having a player with experience at the table kind of running or GMing the game. Mm-hmm. And that makes the learning of the game and the the playing and uh, running through all the different eight steps just a lot more, fl- you know, fluid and 
much easier to grok once you have somebody. But yeah, getting to that point. So the building is a bit of a puzzle and the way that you have to map everything out. Some are going to like it. Some absolutely will not like it. And it can overstay maybe how long it should. It can play a little bit too long, especially in early plays. It, mm-hmm. it likely will. Yeah. And with four players. But it speeds up and it becomes a an enjoyable play length once everybody has the mm-hmm. rules down. It does. So as I'm sure people have heard, there's a considerable amount of take that that isn't necessarily obviously apparent in the game. There are placing the mayor in the screw you location to penalize the first player. Uh, there's a there's a nice official variant to where you don't have to do that if you don't want, like Amanda had talked about earlier. Choosing a special action that you may or may not need, but due to the way the rondelle mechanic works, if a player is too poor to afford the spot they need, no soup for you. Taking lucrative locations in other players' burrows that either help, well, everything that you take like that is going to help you, but maybe it would have helped your opponent more, so you block them out of that. As well as, let's face it, you can kill off other players' tourists. And I'm not saying these are bad things. I like them. I enjoy all these aspects, but not everyone will. Right. Not everybody's going to like that, take that. We don't mind it, but I have to say, you know, Albin's games are very at least this one in clinic, are very 3D spatial type having to wrap your brain around. I don't, not everyone can think that way. I did not inherit that from my father. Unfortunately, he can, but I can't. And so it's, it's, I just feel like that makes the learning curve even higher because you have all of the rules that are kind of difficult to get through. Then you also have to do that puzzle and it's almost like a 3D puzzle that you have to figure out. And it's just, will make your brain melt, man. Just woo. See, and I I see that as a positive. Well, I'm not saying, well, fine. Okay, fine. That's true. However, it might be. Might not be for everybody. Not be for everybody. Not everybody is crazy (laughs) like we are. All right. So while prepping for the show, I came across some comments that, as you guys know, I like to share (laughs) some of my favorites. So take them as you will. Here we go. Quote, It's intriguing in that hates all players kind of way. (laughs) Really, really mathy game. Too much mental effort for us, but otherwise a very heavy and original game. All right. Ordered the game, then read the rule book or tried to read it. Big mistake. I immediately canceled my order. I saw that one. (laughs) Laughed pretty hard. It's like playing SimCity in board game form. Mm -hmm. Turgid, cold, and overly complicated. Very puzzly, and in the end, way too much work for too little fun. Wow. Alrighty. Goodness. You'll feel your brain slowly melting into pudding and mm-hmm. like it. Yep. All right, so we did another Ask the Elephant for this episode, and here are some of the questions. Um, and now me, Jim Parkin, asked, Do you consider tourism to be especially critical or simply an extra option when opportunity arises? I think it's critical because you need, you're not going to build everything in your city that you're necessarily going to, you're going to need more than what you've built. And not to mention, other people's tourists are going to be coming in and taking spots in your cities. So therefore, you got to send people abroad to go out and fill in where either occupations that you don't have or that other people's tourists have taken from your workers. 
I don't think it's as critical as you do, but I do think it's good because it can, like you said, it can block your opponent from being able to use the buildings in their own city, which makes them have to use tourists that if it's in another borough, it could die from pollution. So they may lose a tourist or they may lose a person just because you were able to send a tourist to their borough. And then Jim also asks, aside from the cultural building promise card, do you ever strive to build as many cultural buildings as possible or just enough to promote residential growth? I do just enough to promote residential growth. I like the difficulty in trying to figure out how to get enough of them built. So I probably hamper myself when I play it. But yeah, I try and build as many as I can. I just I, I like the challenge of acquiring the resources. But then I also like the challenge of, hey, I, in fact, I got one of the uh, goal cards, the promise cards that says you had to have one of every residential mm-hmm. building. Well, to be able to do that, you have to build almost all, if not all, the cultural buildings. So that kind of kind of works hand in hand. Right. And I like the, the puzzle that that presents. And I suck really, really bad at it. <laughs> but it was fun trying. Chris Broadbent. CL Broad asks, what is it in this game that brings you back and what makes it worth more than a handful of plays? I just like all the different directions you can go and the different things you can do. That's what makes me want to play it more because simply you may go in having one idea of how you want to play the game, but you may get a promise card that completely changes the way that you had sat down to play the game. And I like that. And I would say that for me, I suck at the game and that that challenge draws me back. I like challenging myself and I like, I I tend to like the games most that I struggle at. Like for instance, through the ages, I just finally won. That's my all time favorite game. And I finally just won it. Mm -hmm. Now I'm not saying I'm retiring from it, but (laughs) just as a point, you know, as an example, there are so many things to juggle and there are so many different decisions that have to constantly be made in this game. Um, I just, in, I enjoy the puzzly aspect of it. So yeah, I, I it's not leaving our collection. Let me put it to you that way. JS Opkix22 asks, can you rate Small City against Town Center and Clinic? We haven't played Town Center. Correct. But a Clinic is different in that you are building up. So you have to think about that as well. Um, I mean, it's they're both, you know, building games. I think the Clinic that you're building in Clinic is the hospital in Small City. Yeah, I wonder, um, because Clinic was really hard. Yes. It it was exceptionally hard to play. And not necessarily due to the rules, although those weren't super great. Um, It was just the 3D aspect really was difficult for both you and I. But I will say this. We haven't played Clinic since having played Small City and having worked through the whole adjacency things and the this needs to be next to this to do this. I wonder if it would become easier to play because I feel like clinic is definitely the more difficult of the two. Mm -hmm. So to be able to compare them, I don't really feel qualified to do that quite yet. It would require more plays of clinic, but I assure you if, and when we do review clinic, we can revisit this. Yeah, absolutely. Are you excited for tramways? Hell yeah, we backed it. Yeah. And um, he wants to know how long until we start reviewing Phil Eklund's games. When we get more of them played. How's that? (laughs) Anytime you're in Denver, stop by. Teach us an Eklund game, which we have a number of. I mean, we played Pax Pamir. We played Pax Porfiriana, which really enjoyed both those games, but haven't played uh, games like Bios Megafauna, High Frontier. We own them, just haven't gotten to them yet. 
probably because we don't have anybody uh, local, local that can teach it because I don't want to learn those, I'll be honest, from reading the rule book. Yeah, the people that we know that could teach us High Frontier live in Ohio and the Netherlands. So we don't really know anybody locally that can So in other that. words, BGG Con, let's right. make that happen. Yeah. All right, so let's uh, let's summarize things. You want to go first? Yes, lady? because I never want to follow you. That's All how right. I felt with Tony. That's funny how <laughs> things change. Yep. Because Viard's games are so difficult for me, and when I say this, I'm purely speaking about clinic and small city. I play none of the card games. I do enjoy playing them. I do not like feeling dumb or feeling that I don't understand something quickly. His games cause me to get out of my comfort zone and force me to use my brain in different ways. I may grumble a lot while I'm playing his games, but I do enjoy them. So there are lots of reasons not to like the game. Rules that are hard to keep straight, lots of chrome and exceptions, a not-so-hot rule book, but I really enjoy playing this game. The game's not clean, and by that I mean it has rough edges and it makes you work to get it. But when you do, it's really fun to play, if for fun means a mental workout. For fans that like games that some folks like to label quote-unquote complex for complexity's sake, this game may very well be up your alley. If not, there's nothing wrong with games like Suburbia to get your city building fix. But for me, I choose Small City. Craftsman is a game that immediately comes to mind, and I see the similarities, not in the gameplay or the mechanics, but in the same feel of having to earn the joy that the game teases you with. It won't give that joy easily, but if you work to love it, it'll love you back. All right, so let's uh, get ready to rate this thing. So if you're just listening to the show for the first time, we rate on a one to six scale. One, it's not me, it's you. Burn it with fire and damn you if you were to pass this game on to anyone else. A two, it's not you, it's me. Just not our cup of tea. Accept it and move on. Three, we feel the game, it's a little below average, but there may be some redeeming features or mechanics, but overall just meh. Now a four, now we're talking above average. Mechanically or in gameplay, there's something good going on, and this is the point at which we consider owning a copy. A five is terrific, dare I say great game. Strongly like the game and almost assuredly will own it. And a six, now you're talking a Hall of Fame game potential for us. No brainer, we will absolutely 100% own this game. So you want to give it a rating? I'm going to rate Small City a five. I very much like the game. I very much enjoy the brain meltingness. I enjoy just head in my hands, not understanding what in the world to do next. It's just a very, I, I really, really enjoy the game. What about you? That surprises me. I thought it would have been lower for you, but uh, pleasantly surprised. I too gave it a five. It's a game, I, I've noticed that I just like rough edges on my games. I don't like them super polished and super developed, mm. overdeveloped to where there's no teeth to them. I like this. Uh, and now that we have gotten past the hurdle of learning the game, I absolutely see this puppy coming out on a regular basis, even post-reviewing. Oh, abso absolutely. I mean, one of the expansions is Godzilla. Yeah, uh, I I can't wait to break it out. I but am I'll, so excited. <laughs> but at the same time, I can wait to break it out. There's yeah. enough going on. It's going to be a while, but when we do play it, the I'm pictures excited. at least are going to be awesome. And that's Small City. All 
right. So in Ask the Elephant, there were some questions that did not go with small city. So we're going to talk about them here a little bit. So Andrew Tolstet, and his username is Tolstet, he asks about uh, Trick of the Rails. Ideally, he wants the game to do five things, be a good trick-taking game, abstract game experience, a train game experience, uh, play fast, be approachable if, even if you don't know anything about train games, and be playable by intuition instead of having to really figure out, you know, calculating things. And he wants to know how well does it achieve this? And I've never played Trick of the Rails, so the ball's in your court, buddy. I think it does most of those things really well. I've only played it three or four times, so I can't speak to the intuition part of it and how much that plays a part versus having to really figure it out. But the rest of it, I'd say it does a really good job for what it tries to do. And I think in the Kickstarter, it was 13 bucks for a copy of it. That's hard to beat. Well, we're well worth taking the risk when it hits retail if you miss that on the Kickstarter. He wants to know if it's better than Trombon. Unequivocally, yes, in my opinion. I thought Trombon was eh, and I think Trick of the Rails is better than eh. <laughs> All right. A.K. Vickhagen, Tilda72, asks, I'd be curious to hear your opinion on the differences and similarities between the upcoming Tramways and Age of Steam. Can't answer it because haven't read the rule book for Tramways and don't have it. Um, but I, I'm just going to go out on a limb and say that Age of Steam is a Hall of Fame game and play that more. And then <laughs> enjoy Tramways for what it is when it gets here. All right, Edward. So why don't you tell everybody how to get in contact with us? All right. Our website is heavycardboard.com. Our email, contact at heavycardboard.com. Our Twitter handle, at heavycardboard. Amanda's is... At Amanda U. Facebook, heavycardboard. And our YouTube, and I would recommend subscribing to our YouTube channel, is heavycardboardvids. Instagram, heavycardboard. Our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash heavy cardboard and finally our bgg guild number 2044 we want to thank the great people at game surplus for their sponsorship of the show good people and reputation and a great inventory of games including many imports and hard to find games their tagline is home of great games at great prices so check them out at gamesurplus.com and tell them heavy cardboard sent you well that was fun huh yeah I'm looking forward to uh, next episode. Tony's going to be joining us again, and we're going to talk some St. Petersburg. Yeah, it's going to be fun. I'm looking forward to it. Not the heaviest game, granted, but it is a age-old classic. And mm -hmm. uh, to say that we were influenced in choosing St. Petersburg, I feel like that's an apropos statement. Most definitely. So we'll catch you guys and gals in a couple weeks. And until then, keep on gaming.